Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, producer and co-host. So happy to have you here. We have an amazing guest today talking about Enneagram One, Dr. Neha Sangwan. She is CEO and founder of Intuitive Intelligence. She's an internal medicine physician, an international speaker, and corporate communication expert. She has a brand new book, Powered by Me, that we're super excited about. We talk about burnout and how to move from burnout to fully charged. Can't wait for you to hear this interview. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner. And now, without any further ado, here is the host of our show, Ian Cron. Hello, Typology friends. Welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the mysteries of the human personality, and I would add the human adventure mm. through the lens of the Enneagram. I'm joined by my friend, Anthony Skinner. Anthony, how are you today, I'm buddy? I'm doing great. I, I have to say this is our first kickoff with you uh, somewhere other than Nashville. That's true. For those of you who don't know, I have moved to San Miguel de Allende in Mexico, uh, up in the mountains, three and a half hours north of Mexico City, where I am having a ball as a uh, a new t temporary uh, resident here in uh, in Mexico. Anthony, we got a big show today. I want to welcome Enneagram One with a two wing, Dr. Neha Sangwan, speaker, physician corporate communication consultant, and more importantly, author of the new book, Powered by Me, From Burned Out to Fully Charged at Work and in Life. Neha, welcome to Typology. <laughs> wow, what a welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you to both of you. I'm excited to be here. Wonderful. Tell us how you first learned about, this is the question we always ask at the front end. Tell us, tell us how you learned about the Enneagram and what it was like when you first discovered that you were an Enneagram One, the improver. Mm. Well, I first discovered it because I was, it must have been close to 2000, early 2000s. And uh, I was doing some communication workshops and I was starting to explore a little bit of self-awareness. Things weren't really working in my life. I burned out. Uh, and that's what opened me to new ways of thinking. And some of the people that I was doing this self-awareness work with said, oh, I think you're an Enneagram three. And then they'd argue and another one would say, no, I think she's a seven. And I was like, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> and that's when I started uh, exploring it. But I was taking other people's opinions at that point in my life more than I was actually, you know, sitting down and doing the actual questions. So the first time that I figured out I was a one was very recently. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I literally sat down and did all the questions Um I found out I was a one with a two wing. And, you know, when I'm reading what that is, I just kept thinking, oh, yeah, wow. wow. Okay, yeah. Um, and so I think all of our guessing uh, could have been put to rest a long time ago. That's <laughs> wonderful. And I love that you made the connection between self-awareness and uh, the Enneagram. I uh, talk a lot about self-awareness as a corporate, you know, consultant, workshop, uh, trainer uh, and because there is this belief uh, in in the research that the key predictor of success in business is self awareness. You know, it's they, people tend to think it's a hard skill and it's not. Mm -hmm. Right, it's a soft skill. Mm -hmm. It's self discovery, self understanding, and 
the ability to just observe yourself in real time, the ways that you act, think, and feel, and how that lands on other people, and then to be able to regulate it. I mean, you know, I get so excited about this this topic. <laughs> so I'm glad that you that you you, you made that uh, that wonderful connection. So Enneagram ones. Sometimes when they discover their ones, it triggers some hard feelings for them or feelings like, ouch, oh, I don't necessarily want to own that piece of myself. Did you have any of that experience? You know, not really. I think because now I'm 20 years into this journey. Mm. And so I'm getting more clear about what I value and who I am and what I'm becoming. And I'm just wondering, is there any way over a journey that maybe the people who knew me at the beginning of the 2000s were more right that I was an achiever when I was more focused on what my parents and the Indian community and society wanted from me? And now I'm more concerned about what I value and what I think is right Mm. And so I just wanted to ask you guys, because I want to know, do people, you know, can people shift through their life? Well, I think that, I mean, at least according to traditional Enneagram teaching, your type does not change over the course of your life. In other words, the unconscious, unseen uh, motivation, key motivation or need does not shift. However, Mm. your uh, as a result of doing the work, if you will, you evolve within your type. Mm. You become healthier in your personality. You're you're no longer on autopilot, if you will. You know, <laughs> you're you're going through life as a conscious human being, which of course makes for big internal shifts. Now the unconscious motivation of the one is this, and I remind you that the word I use to describe the one is the improver. That's the signifier I use because you're so great at it. And I would say that the unconscious motivation is you all really want to be good. Like being good. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to get an A. Like... Yeah, I don't know if we need to compare you to a three, but I think a three, the the performer achiever, there are similarities. Like uh, threes are very concerned with excellence as are uh, ones. Threes do not have the same inner critic uh, that the one has, which is very pronounced. Mm-hmm. Threes, uh, not in their healthiest expression, will be willing to cut corners to cross a finish line, which a one will not. Um, <laughs> they uh, Ones will be so focused on meeting their high internal standards mm-hmm. um, that uh, in a way that a three wouldn't. So I'm just trying to describe some of the core internal differences. Does that sound more like you're a one than a three? I mean, this is hilarious because even prior to this this podcast. So I was doing, I'm doing it in my boyfriend's office and there's a Murphy bed and his daughter's staying with us and the the bed was down and he does a million (laughs) podcasts and he does all these things. And he said, you know, you just, just let it be, just blur your background and just leave the bed down. Okay. (laughs) But I was like, I called my assistant in. I was like, Help me get this up. I need it all. Like, that is absolutely unacceptable. And so when you're like, high internal standards will not let you cut corners, I'm like, oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's right. Because I think to myself, like, why? Why would you do it and not do it well? Mm. You know, so there's a part of me that everything you're saying is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
All right. Yes, that's that's me. And I would tell you even um, that on the tennis court when I was younger, I was the most cruel to myself on the tennis court. Mm. And what I would say to myself, I would not tolerate from my enemy, you know. Wow. And and so when you said that we have that inner critic, now I'm seeing like, you know, it has taken me years to be compassionate to myself when I make a mistake. And so now I, what I do is I say, so Neha, you can do a take two, your favorite movie, uh, you know, by the way, which is cinema, it's called Cinema Paradiso. But oh, of course. Oh, yeah. Of course. Oh, yeah. Uh, I just got back from Italy and we watched it there. And of course, it just solidified <sighs> that that is my favorite movie. But I always think to myself, that movie wasn't made because it was done in one take. It's so good because they allowed themselves to do multiple take twos. Mm. And so I kind of have to coach myself into take twos are okay. Mm. And you're allowed mm. to make mistakes. And then that will allow you to risk. And so uh, I've gotten there, you know, I've gotten a long way from the tennis court, but I will tell you, um, I don't, I kind of zeroed out me playing tennis because I found myself not kind to myself on mm. the court. Mm. I, I so here's it. an. It, I was just going to say, Ian, that's great advice for a one, right? And I love, like, oh, yeah. just that's something I think to highlight for all ones, the fact that you said your own inner critic would say things that you wouldn't even tolerate from your enemies. Mm-mm. Like, that Mm-mm. shows you how powerful that the critic of that of the one can be, right? I love that. Yeah. Mm. I've broken off relationships for someone saying less than... <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. That- yeah. That is so funny. You have a, I I was looking over your website and you have a great quote on there that really caught my eye. You wrote, I have a degree in mechanical engineering and a uh, graduate degree in medicine. Don't be too impressed. It just means I'm a good Indian child. (laughs) Now, (laughs) uh, we've had other uh, people of uh, different ethnic descent. I'm not going to, we had a woman on who is a, a well-known um, physician, and she said that in her culture, you could be one of two things, a lawyer or a physician. Those were the two things. Grandparents, parents, everybody. It was <laughs> drilled into you, right? Uh, you, if you wanted to be an artist, no. If you wanted to be anything else but those two things, the answer was no. So my question is, do you think that there is a cultural contribution to the formation of your formation of your personality type. I do. Um, I I think it's not only a cultural, uh, you know, shaping. I think that early trauma um, mm. that is unhealed in our lives shapes us more than we ever give it credit for. And I would say there was not a time that I remember that the pe- the big people around me, right? Because I was little then. Mm. The big people around me, I don't remember a time where they weren't leaning over me saying, so Neha, are you going to be an engineer or a doctor? Mm. And I grew up believing that there were two, two professions, just like this other person who said it was law or medicine. And then I remember once coming home from 10th grade, 11th grade, thinking about colleges and saying, dad, I really am enjoying Mr. Russo's accounting class. He's amazing. And I got a hundred on my test and maybe I'm going to become an accountant. And he just put his arm around me and he said, no, 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 no. Like accountants move numbers around my daughter. My daughter's going to be a mechanical engineer. Hmm. 
And I, do, I don't know if parents know what happens in those moments, but it's such a strong mm-hmm. signal of approval or disapproval mm-hmm. that, and then he said, well, I'll be paying, you know, for a majority of your undergrads. So, you know, and he literally back then we wrote the application, he erased accounting and put mechanical engineering. And so I went, so I went. Um, and I remember once overhearing him in, on a call with his friend saying, yeah, I mean, my, I, it's just my luck, right? The second one turned out to be a girl too. All I wanted was a son who was an engineer who could play, who could play tennis with me. And, you know, I, it's very cultural. This is not, you know, and then I know the unhealed trauma piece for me because I've done a lot of reflection on it. In an Indian culture, nobody thinks twice about living with extended family and passing children around, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, like you pass a teddy bear, right? Like everybody's passing the kids to the grandparents and the aunts and the uncle, everybody. And so my grandmother had come to take care of us when we were really young. And I have a sister 18 months older to me. uh, And then I was born. So two kids under two is pretty, pretty big. And so I have two immigrant parents working all the time. Well, my grandfather gets called by the United Nations to Africa on assignment and he wants my grandmother. So she, you know, scoops me up, talks to my parents, says, I'm taking Neha with me. And off I go three months to two years old with my grandparents. Now they're very loving. They, they're very attentive. My whole life, I was very close to them because of those two years. But when it was time for my mom and my sister to come and pick me up and bring me home, that's who I thought my parents were. Mm. And so the trauma that ensued mm. was nearly one month of nonstop crying oh. and me being unwilling to call my father anything but, hey, you, hey, you, I need potty. Hey, you, I need food. Hey, you, hey, you. Until finally he took two weeks off from work and I decided to upgrade him to uncle. Uh, there's the stubborn in me, like quite stubborn. And then another few weeks and I find he finally upgraded to dad. But that surrender in my life, I think, shaped some of my people pleasing that may have confused me as the achiever. Because, you know, I then looked around me and did anything the people around me wanted me to do so that I wouldn't be sent away again. Mm-hmm. And I, I only understood it in my 30s when I literally burned out from trying to pe- people please. Mm-hmm. And when I got all this, you know, awareness of my trauma and my behavior and all of these things, boy, the moment I got a taste of who am I, what do I believe? Mm -hmm. Even though my family wasn't really interested in going on the journey with me, because of course I tried to get everybody else to go. Mm -hmm. (laughs) At the time, it wasn't the right time for them. Even if it meant I was going to grow apart from them, I was committed to the journey. I was done. Yes. So this is uh, a, an important lesson for every single type on the Enneagram, for every, for every human being. And this is uh, an insight that I gleaned from Carl Jung. And Jung talks about this idea that uh, an important part of the development of human being is uh, individuation or differentiation, which is to examine your cultural and familial Uh, relationships and what you learned and the scripts that you inherited to interrogate them and release them so that you could become your own person and not live the unlived life of your parents. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. 
So my dad wants this son who's an engineer. My mom's parents never let her be a doctor because what kind of a wife would you make? And I just wanted to be everything that they wanted yes. me to be so I wouldn't get sent away again. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, what a con- what a confluence of forces. And, mm-hmm. and what an exciting thing that you went on a journey that freed you from the constraints of those expectations. Because if you hadn't, here's what usually happens. Sometime later in your life, you, or not necessarily later, but there's a moment where your soul will begin to summon you, the true you, and it will say, the only way I can get your attention, Neha, is through a depression or through giving you an anxiety disorder or through an addiction. I'm going to have- Physically getting ill. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm going to wake you up. It's not going to appear like a gift, but in a weird way it is (laughs) because it's a signal from your soul that you have to become yourself. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that was part of your journey. Huge. It all happened when I burned out. Mm -hmm. So you bet. You know, what seemed like the most shameful, humiliating, devastating experience of my life really, I, I mean, I guess I would say, you know, cracked me open to my true life. Yeah. And how hard for an Enneagram one to really push back against those cultural expectations mm-hmm. because the message inside your head would be, this isn't being good. Oh, right? oh it was awful. I mean, it was absolutely awful to realize mm. that I spent my whole life trying to get my older sister to love me and belong mm-hmm. and, uh, and get my parents' approval. I mean, literally, my grandparents would say to people, do you know she's an engi- a mechanical and biomedical engineer? She's an internal medicine physician. She's our granddaughter. Her name is Neha. Mm-hmm. So there's this whole wow. entourage that goes before who wow. I am. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'll, I'll also tell you that when I went against, you know, what, so my parents are immigrants And they came to this country in 1965, both science related. My mom's a biochemist. My dad has multiple degrees, a master's degrees from University of Michigan in engineering, worked at General Motors for 42 years in research and design, really, you know, really entrepreneurial in the fact that they left their country, came here and figured out how to make it for us. And yet at the same time, their deepest need was for belonging and security. So the first time I got a book deal, you know, my parents at that time, they both were getting close to retirement. So I'd call home and one would pick up. Hi, Neha. And then I'd just hear a click because the other one's going to be on the phone, too. Right. But they won't say that they're both on the phone. Okay. And um, and so I'm talking to them and I said, hey, mom, hey, dad, like I just got a book deal and a public television deal. This was like in 2012. And there's silence on the phone. And I thought that getting a book deal and a public television deal would show them that this entrepreneurial space that I had been embarking on for a decade was going to be something. Dead silence on the phone. And my father says, well, now that you're not a real doctor anymore, what will we tell our friends? Mm. And I remember being so hurt Mm -hmm. that, in fact, it had the opposite effect because if if he values belonging and security... What I have just done is rocked his world of what a doctor looks like, the financial security of it. What if this doesn't make it? Where are you going? In what path are you headed? Mm -hmm. 
And so I rocked everything. So the levels of belonging that I've needed to face, uh, I basically took two days off. I talked to every coach and every mentor and every friend, cried it out, got back on the phone with him. And I just said, hey, dad, I just want you to know you did a good job. Mm. I understand that the path I'm taking cuts to the core of security and stability that you hoped I would have as an engineer, as a doctor. And what I want you to know is, you know, you don't have to worry. Yeah. So he really, um, he said, oh, is that what went on? Because I did think I was, I might not have been so compassionate to you. Your mother said it, you know, like, of course, after they get off, my mom's like, what are you doing? Why did you say that to her? You know, <laughs> but it's, it's fighting every step of the way because as a one becoming this entrepreneur, when at a very young age, all I wanted was my family to belong, to belong mm. and not be sent away, not feel abandoned. Um, mm. It's been, it's definitely been a challenge, but I've needed to do it even in healthcare. I've needed to do it with my peers. I remember when I was burned out, um, I, I was on burnout leave and I started researching stress. What's at the, what's at the root of this thing? Everybody's calling burnout. And I found that stress causes or exacerbates more than 80% of all illness. So what you're speaking to with the Enneagram is when you're not your true self, that is stressful. Yes. Yeah. It is stressful to be someone who you're not and have to change who you are in every room you walk into. Yes. And I think there's a lot of people playing that outside in game rather than the inside out game. And uh, so I'm researching stress and I realize it's at the root of, uh, you know, all illness, um, not all illness, but a majority of illness. And I come back to work and I say to my colleagues, Hey guys, I, I can't tell you what I have learned in my time off. I've learned about stress and all these things. So I'm wondering, how about at the end, once we've stabilized our patients from a heart attack, stroke, pneumonia, whatever it is, why don't we um, ask them what's at the root of their stress? That would be a great time to have them reflect. And with a straight face, colleague after colleague after colleague said some version of this to me. Just like you would never order a lab test or a diagnostic test that you didn't know what to do with the result, why would you ever ask a question that you didn't know what to do with the answer? Mm. And that infuriated me because I thought to myself, these people are depending on us. We're smart. We might not have the answer, but we've got to figure it out. That's what they want from us. And that has been the last 20 years. Okay. So I know that a lot of listeners right now, Anthony, are thinking to themselves, based on some of the answers that Neha's or the, the narrative that she has shared with us just now, are thinking, oh, no, she's surely a three. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> I, want people, I want people to pay attention here to cultural factors mm -hmm. and to unconscious motivations. Yeah. So I want to also, Neha, let's just figure this out, okay? Because this is part of the journey of the show. Yeah. Sure. The unconscious motivation of the one. Okay. Is a need is a need to be good, and a need to perfect themselves, others, and the world around them. So <laughs> that <laughs> okay, I'm getting a lot of laughter here. Oh my gosh! Anytime I get in a fight with my family, I say to them. 
Tell me one thing, one name I've ever called you, one thing I've ever done that wasn't good. Like, tell me one thing mm. in your world. You've lived with me, you know, for 50 some years. You got to give me an example of something I've done to deserve what you're saying to me. Mm-hmm. And so I use my goodness or like my aspiring to be good um, almost as my defense to say like, how dare you? How dare you criticize me? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How dare you? You know, so I definitely resonate with the good piece. What was the second part of that? There was a second part. Well, it's a, a need to uh, perfect themselves, others, and the world around them. So, for example, oh. the Murphy bed thing is an example <laughs> of, mm-hmm. right? But, and that also means then conforming others and things, circumstances to your high internal standards. And believing in your most unhealthy state that there are two ways to do things, your way and the wrong way. <laughs> uh-huh. right. Oh, my poor boyfriend. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yes, I, I will say that uh, when I learned about self-awareness and self-reflection and communication and all of this, um, I did go on a, gosh, maybe it's a crusade. But I went on, you know, a mission to get all my colleagues to start speaking up in healthcare, And I tried to get my whole family to get, fly across the country to do self-awareness workshops with me. And, you know, it didn't go so well. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then I just decided that, you know, if they're not going to do this, that's fine. I'm going to go do it on my own. And you're right. I probably thought there was my way or... Um, the wrong way. And now, Mm -hmm. now that, you know, that take two grace part that I told you I've taught myself, Mm -hmm. I now have figured out that when people ask for my opinion or help from me, um, I share it with them. And then I, I detach from the need for them to take that advice. I always say, listen, you've asked me something. I've given you my best um, answer and you'll know when and if it's the right time for you or the right option for you. And I think I've gotten a little better uh, at that. But I do notice, um, like with my team, I need things to really be right. We're launching a new website. We're doing, you know, the book. I went through this book nine times after it was done because I thought, well, once you put it in print and you send it out there, the readers should be able, like, They shouldn't be, it's already hard enough. They should not be confused. It should be very clear. So I have my own reasoning around why I have to have it perfect. So yes, I I do think that's right. (laughs) Now, you know, you've just highlighted something and now I want to move into talking very specifically about the book, but not before I just say this. What you've done just then is um, you have highlighted how, the curse of the one is also the blessing of the one, mm-hmm. right? You, like, like, you know, when that need for, you want that book to be great and you want it to be good for other people. And I think that's admirable and it's good. And mm-hmm. I think I've written books. I know what it's like. You know, I think going through it nine times might be a little obsessive, but I think, it, I think, <laughs> but I think of course it's, it's wonderful until it goes sideways. Right. And, and you're not describing it going sideways, but when it does become obsessive, when it does become, I need, then 
the blessing becomes a curse, right? Yeah. Uh, and it can it can get people and you crazy. Yeah. Hey everybody, one of the lessons I've learned over the years is that not everybody benefits from a traditional 50-minute counseling session. And this is why some people can go to couples therapy or personal counseling for a long time and never really get anywhere. This is why I'm such a believer of intensive counseling and my friends at Restoring the Soul in Colorado, created by my longtime friend Michael Cusick to help couples or individuals experience deep change in half-day blocks over one or two weeks. Now listen, if you can't wait months or years to get to the bottom of an issue or to experience breakthrough, you need to get in touch with my friend Michael and his extraordinary team of counselors at Restoring the Soul. If you're looking to get out of the rut you're in but can't wait months or years, call Restoring the Soul today for a free consultation with Michael's staff. Call 303-932-9777 and learn how their intensive counseling process can help you. As a special bonus, just for typology, listeners make sure to visit www.restoringthesoul.com slash typology to download their pdf called five ways unaddressed trauma may be derailing your relationships so the new book powered by me from burned out to fully charged at work and in life i want to hear about the story that inspired your writing a book about burnout mm. Well, uh, that was June 17th, 2004. Uh, I walked in and as a hospital physician, so I'm an internal medicine physician. And when you go into that career, you pick either being in the clinic where you see 25, 35 patients a day, or you go into the hospital where you're taking care of, you know, 16, 18 critically ill hospitalized patients. So where did I go? Obviously, the biggest challenge, the biggest crisis, like all of this, right? I'm going to save the day. So that day was the last day of my rotation, which means you not only see all your patients, you have to dictate everything, hand it over to somebody else. Well, we got a call this, that we were down one doctor. And would I please hold the alpha pager? What that means is air traffic control for the hospital, all incoming, you know, liver transplants, traumas, everything. So I came in at 6 a.m. By 11 a.m., I had seen two of my 18 patients. I had no awareness of this. I just kept answering pagers, right? I turned to the nurse and I said, Nina, could you please give 40 milliequivalents of IV potassium to the gentleman in 636? And she just looked at me and she said, Dr. Sangwan, are you okay? And that was my first indication I might not be. Mm. And I said, yeah, Why? And she said, because you've asked me that same question four times in under five minutes, and I've answered you every single time. And so that was my awareness that some, because I had no re recollection of it, I realized that I needed to talk to someone. So I uh, grabbed the hospital phone, went into the bathroom, which is like nearly the only place for privacy, and called a colleague, a psych psychiatric colleague. And I said, you know, can I come see you? And he said, Neha, good to hear from you. Sure, I'll make time for you at the end of the day. And I just looked at my pale, you know, weary face in the mirror. And I just said, how about now? And even in that moment, I thought I was only sidelining him for a consult. Like, like you just say like, hey, look at this. What do you think of this skin mold? Do you think it's okay? Or do you need like that? And an hour later, uh, I went from being, you know, a doctor running the hospital to uh, being in line on stress leave, a patient, 
and standing in line to get Prozac. And I think that was, you know, it, it was one of the most disorienting days of my life. Um, but I still, I knew I was in shock, but I didn't really know what was happening. And then I don't remember the drive home, which tells me I probably shouldn't have been the one driving me home. But as I was driving, I do remember looking over at the Prozac on, on the passenger seat, something I had prescribed to people many, many times. And all the side effects are like running through my mind from pharmacology class. And I remember being really afraid of that and thinking, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I'm pretty sure it's not a Prozac deficiency. Like mm. something's not fitting here, but I don't know what it is. And so over the next uh, several weeks, I went in and met with the psychiatrist, et cetera, for about five weeks. And by the way, I took that Prozac, I put it in the top drawer in case I needed it in the future. See, that's the problem with a doctor becoming a patient. They start managing their own medication. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Non-compliance is what it's called, <laughs> I think. Yes, uh, guilty, guilty as charged. So about five weeks later, I mean, this is the alarming piece. Five weeks later, I had just, my throat constriction had started to relax. My, I had started sleeping through the night and every week I had been going and learning about my people pleasing and all, all these other things that had contributed. I was getting bullied uh, at the hospital, all sorts of things. And I came in the fifth week and I said, I, I just want to tell you, uh, I think, I think I'm feeling a little bit better. Of course, in my mind, I just wanted to get back to work. And he says to me, yeah, that Prozac sure is you know, kicking in. And I was like, oh, I didn't tell you that I put it in my drawer because I wanted to see if our sessions could help before, if I really needed it, because I know then you're going to have to wean me off of it. And he said to me, oh my goodness, well, I can't see you anymore if you're not on medication. Psychiatrists only get paid to see you see patients who are on medications. So would you like to start taking it or would you like to find another provider? And that broke my heart all over again, mm -hmm. which made me realize that we are in a system that understands how to pull people off the cliff of burnout, give them some time off, give them some cocktail of Ativan for anxiety, Ambien for sleep and Prozac for uh, depression, some version of all of those. And maybe if you're pretty progressive, give someone stress management or uh, tell them to go on a yoga retreat or something like that. But we don't really have the tools to help them figure out the patterns and what got them there mm. in the first place. Because how they got there is as unique as their fingerprint. Mm. The traumas, their upbringing, the patterns they develop, the ways that they have been working, the choices that they've made, the environment that they're in at home and at work, and you know, global pandemics and tsunamis and things that are going on in the world. And so as soon as I realized that I didn't know anything about this and the medical world, the traditional medical world didn't really have the answers for me. That is when I, so we parted ways very amicably, but we knew we were in a system that wasn't going to be able to help me in the way that I wanted to be helped. Mm. And, uh, and so I had to find other, you know, healers and, and uh, mentors. Yeah, of course. Along wow. the way. And I'm happy to yeah. say it culminated and powered by me. 
So wow. I'm so glad. Yeah, I want to encourage everybody to check out this wonderful book, Powered by Me. For many uh, folks, uh, well, let me ask you this. You talk about burnout is happening on five different levels, right? You you burn out on the ment- on mentally, socially, emotionally, physically, and spiritually, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So what is it, I mean, kind of, I guess it just succinctly, what does burnout look like in each of those areas? Yeah, well, let's, let's start with what burnout is. There's a triad of burnout. So literally the way it's defined is exhaustion, which is physical, mental, emotional exhaustion that usually goes on over time. And then the second pillar is the interesting one, which is cynicism creeps in. Mm -hmm. And so you start hearing yourself say things like, it doesn't really matter how hard I try. It's not going to make a difference. This doesn't, this, this really isn't worth my time and energy. And you start to get this to this place where it's been going on long enough that you start to distance yourself from other people. Like, did you hear me say earlier that like, can you please give this medication to the gentleman in 636? So now I'm talking about people by their room number, not by their name. Not... So I start mm-hmm. distancing myself to conserve mm. energy, not because wow. I don't care, but literally because I'm, I don't have the energy. And then the third uh, piece of this is ineffectiveness. And that was the moment she said, you have just asked me that question four times in under five minutes and I'm having no awareness of it. So try to burn out exhaustion, cynicism, ineffectiveness. And the other thing that's really important is it doesn't happen. Like you're not fine on Monday and then burned out on Friday. It is something that goes on over time. Your physiology doesn't work that way. In fact, your body is built to handle short-term stress. So there's three phases of burnout that people also want to be aware of. The first one is the alarm phase, which is almost like you jumping on a treadmill that's going too fast when your heart skips a beat, when your, your adrenaline kicks in, you might sweat. You know, it's like that moment where you're, you're readjusting. The second phase uh, people move into is when they stay on that same treadmill and don't really get off of it. They don't, there is no rest. There is no rejuvenation. And you start living there and maybe even turning it up by 0.1, you know, uh, mile per hour as you keep going. That's the adaptation phase. And then a lot of people just live their life and their careers there. And then it just takes Mm. one more thing to slide you down the exhaustion phase, the slippery slope of burnout to ineffectiveness. So there's, there's the triad and then there's the phases that people go through and there's different symptoms, you know, and signs along the way. Now, what I did is I started to really understand that this is a global epidemic because how people want to understand, well, if everyone can get there in different ways and, uh, you know, everyone has their own unique path there and how do we get our, our heads and our hearts around this? And so what I realized after working with tens of thousands of people and 20 years of this and experiencing it myself is I believe that where you are on the spectrum from burned out to fully charged can be measured by whether you're having a net gain or a net drain of energy on a physical, mental, emotional, social, or spiritual level. Mm. And if we could give people a pulse check, a way to kind of figure out where they need to focus, wouldn't that be a great way to personalize it for them? Because if you're burned out, you don't want to read a whole book. You don't want to, you know, you don't even have the energy to do that. You want to know like, where do I go? How do I focus? 
So what I would do is, let's just say, phys- I'll, I'll give you some examples, yeah, in each of yeah. these areas. Great. So in the physical energy area, one of the questions I ask is, what is your level of satisfaction in food, sleep, energy, and movement? Meaning, you know, are you eating whole foods, uh, you know, at even intervals throughout the day? Do you... Um, do you eat out more than you uh, cook at home? Might be true, but maybe some people eat out and they eat out and source good food, even when they eat out. So it's really about your own satisfaction. It's not about right or wrong mm-hmm. in what you're eating. It's about how satisfied are you? When I ask on, on sleep, I say things like, when you wake up in the morning, do you feel fully rested? Do you get seven to nine hours of quality sleep, um, energy? Do you feel consistent energy throughout the day? Or do you have that three o'clock energy dip that goes on? Uh, And then movement. Do you have a a joyful way to move in your body multiple times a week? Mm. So they get to say what that is and rate themselves on a scale of one to 10 on how satisfied they are. So let's say, you know, a couple of them have a seven or a five or a three, whatever it is. I just say, great. Now just tell me what would make it a 10? What's missing? And so they can fill that and you start to get an awareness. Then at the end of physical, I say to you, okay, as you're filling out these, these answers, don't just use your head, check into your body. Tell me whether your body is tight. Your muscles are tight. You're constricted. You feel heavy. You feel tense because you may be saying everything's fine. I'm satisfied, but it's like your mind says something, but your body keeps Mm -hmm. score. Mm-hmm. And so your mind and your body have to be in alignment for you to do a pulse check and for it to be the real pulse check. Mm-hmm. So then if we go to mental, mental, I'd ask them questions around when something uh, is unexpected that happens, who who's to blame most often for you? Is it something that you did? Oh, my God, what did I do? Oh, my gosh, I might have. Is it I bet you did something wrong? Is it on someone else most often or is it? something bigger than you or me. Oh God, the weather. I hope something, the traffic is okay. So you start to understand patterns of how you think. And then I ask you to write down the top three um, mental, like the thoughts that are running on repeat in your head when you're in the shower, when you're driving, when you first wake up in the morning. And then let me know, do those give you energy or do they drain you of energy? And so there's a few quick ways that you can kind of do this pulse check that will change with you over time. Uh, emotions, I say, tell me what area of your life gives you great joy and happiness, you know, work, home, social, uh, alone time, you know, whatever it is, other. Then I say, tell me what areas for the emotional energy. Tell me what areas in your life you're where you're avoiding conflict or challenging emotions. Because right there is a quick area of where drain is happening. Because uh, all the energy you have to put into suppressing all of that is taking away your energy. And then in social, I say, social energy, I say, why don't you just jot down the top five people or groups of people in person or online that you spend the most time with? So once they write it down, I say, pay attention now. When you are with this person or leaving this person or people, when you're clicking off, getting off Zoom, whatever it is, Do you feel like you have a net gain of energy or a net drained? And then just look across those five. And then I want you to, you know, do the internal check with your body and and these answers to say, are you having in social energy, you having a net gain or a net drain? And then lastly, in spiritual. Spiritual is an amazing one. 
spiritual is about what you value most. It's about what matters most to you. Mm. So your highest values. And sometimes people don't even know what those are. So I help them go through that to figure, figure it out. Because if you don't know what your highest values are, how do you make clear decisions in a complex world? Mm-hmm. And spiritual is also about self-trust. So I ask them things like, where are you willing to take risks? Are you willing to take physical risks and go on a hike on a mountain and, you know, 90 degree weather? Is that you? Are you the one that goes running for that? Because if it is, you've got a lot of self-trust in the physical arena because you're willing to take risks there. Mm-hmm. What about the mental? What are you willing to discuss? Are you willing to go to politics and religion and places where other people aren't willing to go? Well, you probably have a lot of trust in the mental arena and so on. So we go through where where you're willing to take risks because that's where you trust yourself. And then lastly, um, I talk about you know meaning and purpose and the connection. I talk about more than that in the spiritual section, but you know I talk about surrender. Uh, when when is it time to let go and how good are you at that? control versus surrender. Mm-hmm. And then sacred, something I call sacred exchanges, which is actually what I think we're doing here, which is having an honest conversation, whether it's someone you just met, whether it's someone sitting next to you on a plane or the cashier at the grocery store or people you've known your whole life. When, when you have an exchange with them, is it one of those moments where you're fully present and connected and it means something to you? Or are you just trying to get through your day and just make sure no one's mad at you. So mm-hmm. sacred exchange. Uh, and then I say at the end, you know, how do you become powered by me? And so you put it all together. But before you can do that, first, you got to know what burnout is. You got to understand the phases and you got to um, know where you're having a net gain or a net drain of energy on a physical, mental, emotional, social and spiritual level. Mm-hmm. Wow, this has been such a great conversation. <laughs> uh, I wish we couldn't stop, uh, but I'm, you know, I want to remind everybody we're talking to our our new friend, Dr. Neha Sangwan, and uh, her about her new book, Powered by Me: From Burned Out to Fully Charged at Work and in Life. This is spoken by somebody who has been there. This is not uh, a book written in the abstract, but it is written uh, almost in the voice of one, uh, a, a memoirish uh, kind of uh, exploration of this uh, these scientific topics. I think it's fantastic. And I want to just stop here. I was re- thinking about this. Think about stressors uh, that would be specific to ones and could probably lead to burnout. Mm-hmm. So here's going to, you tell me if these sound familiar to you. This okay. Good. Yes. All right. One would be uh, hanging around with people who are undependable or unmotivated, right? Not <laughs> showing up for life. Right. Yeah. Um, another one would be. Uh, well, I'm going seeing... to I'm gonna try to do my little improvement thing there. Right. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm going to start asking them questions. And what, what gets you excited? I'm going to I'm going to like go right into that mode. You're right. That's good. Absolutely. Uh, I think if you are in a um, I, I don't want to say a messy environment, but in an environment that is uh, unkempt or just chaotic, mm-hmm. that can can really lead to a lot of stress for uh, a one. I worked with a woman actually who was CFO of a um 
private equity firm in Manhattan, and and she uh, described this company she worked for, which was actually quite chaotic mm. and messy and stuff. And she was a very strong one, and she was so miserable, but she felt that it wasn't good to leave after only nine months. And I said, <laughs> let me just give you permission. If they're never going to change, you are going to die inside of that place as a one. Right? So here's a couple of others. I think it's really hard and stressful, and which could lead to burnout, I suppose, for ones if uh, they're around, uh, if they feel being taken for granted. You bet. If they are faced with feelings of uh, powerlessness in the face of corruption in the world. Oh, 100%. Uh, not obviously living up to their own expectations, having shame over, uh, you know, making mistakes yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, maybe feeling like other people aren't doing what they're supposed to do and therefore you have to pick up the slack. 100%. Um, 100%. Which... That'll burn you out. Anyway, I could go on and on. I guess what I'm trying to say is Enneagram Ones, this book is for you, as it is for all types, because we all can, doesn't matter what type you are, everybody can suffer from burnout. Ones, actually, I do think, have a special kind of susceptibility to mm. burnout, as do threes, as do twos, mm -hmm. as all types can, but for different reasons. Mm. Yeah. For different reasons. Yeah, and I'm always, I'm always drawn to the sevens because they just look like they're having so much fun. Yeah, except that a seven can burn themselves out on that gluttonous need <laughs> for new adventures and exciting stuff to do. And as you mentioned earlier, their avoidance of painful and difficult feelings and thoughts actually causes a high degree of stress mm. for them because they're always skating right in front of the cracks. They're actually yeah. one of the most anxious numbers. Them. And that's a big burnout. Yeah, they're actually one of the most anxious oh, numbers. Oh, yeah, on very the anxious. Yes. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Neha, thank you so much for being on. Thank you for this wonderful new book, Powered by Me, From Burned Out to Fully Charged at Work and in Life. Can we get you back on the show again? Oh my gosh, anytime. You guys are a blast. Absolutely. I learned, oh. I learned so much. Wonderful. Anthony, as always, what a good thing to see your face, even though you are a country away from me. <laughs> Same, Ian. <laughs> good to be with you. Thank oh, you, Neha. Man. Well, listen, uh, yeah, Friend, thank you, Anthony. Friends, remember these words. May you have love. May you have joy. May you have peace. May you have healing. And may you have rest. Until next time.